Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for checking out this special podcast series where we've paired up with our friends at the television show Guiding Flow to share guests and continue the conversations and discussions that happen around each episode. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, Turtle Box Audio, Costa Sunglasses, Traeger Grills, and our friends at Orvis Fly Fishing. Carter Andrews is one of a kind. Whether helping build lodges in some of the world's most amazing fisheries to chasing smallmouth in the quiet waters of Tennessee, Carter takes his love for the water everywhere he goes. In today's podcast, Carter and I sit down at his home to discuss where his journey began and how he's learned to take big risks when venturing into life's unknowns. In this episode, you will get a peek behind the curtain of what makes Carter Andrews, Carter Andrews, and get the opportunity to hear some great breakdowns and thoughts concerning gear, techniques, and the mentality needed to be successful in all life's pursuits. Carter also shares with us how his life has been shaped to be an advocate for the outdoors and what it's like to receive the honor of being the recipient of the recent Costa Sunglasses and Captains for Clean Water Steward of the Year. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. Well, hey, Carter, thanks so much for hanging out and joining us on the podcast. This is partnered up with your episode with Benny, uh, with Guiding Flow, and grateful just that you would make some time for us to come in and hang out with you at your home, in your shop. Do you have a name for this shop? A name for it. I don't know. My girls just say it's a mess. Daddy, <laughs> Daddy it's a mess. <laughs> well, I, uh, I appreciate you for letting us come in. Um, maybe for just a, just kind of a quick overview, could you just share about how you got into guiding and really where this whole crazy thing began for you? Got into guiding. You know, I was a passionate angler for a really long time, um, spending time in Tennessee and Virginia and a little bit of time in Connecticut. But as far as guiding, it was moving to Jackson Hole, Wyoming in 1988 and um you know i was visiting one of the fly shops very regularly and after about six months i was offered a job at jack dennis sports who's he's one of the legendary fly fishermen of that time wrote a lot of books jack dennis mike lawson gary lafontaine were kind of the big guys of kind of wyoming Idaho, Montana. Uh, but the guy that offered me the job was Jeff Courier. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, who's a contemporary of ours and um, still very big in, in fly fishing, um, um, does a lot of writing, does a lot of traveling. And uh, so he gave me my first job. Yeah, and, and I had heard, you, you did a great interview with April Vokey where if people want to hear the longer uh, story about how you ended up you know, in Wyoming, um, but up to that point, you had done, you know, mostly bass, right? And then you get into the the, tr- the fly fishing trout scene. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. And so you do that for a while, and then eventually you discover saltwater. Could you tell me the story about what really hooked you into saltwater fishing, which I know you do all kinds of angling, but most people know you for salt. Well, I mean, living in Jackson Hole, even though the skiing is great, if you're a passionate angler, at some point, you've got to fish more than four months of the year. And I realized that um, I was able to build a pretty good um, group of clients that in the wintertime, I started hosting trips to 
saltwater destinations. And after two or three of those trips, I just said, wow, I mean, instead of hosting trips, I could live in saltwater for the winter. I mean, I could do eight months in saltwater. Um, so I did a little bit. I did, um, I went to Southern Cross uh, Club, which is on Little Cayman. Mm-hmm. Tiny a little island in the Cayman Islands, Little Cayman. But the nice thing about it is it had a mini tarpon fishery. It had a permit fishery and a bone fishery. So for a fly fisherman um, going and cutting his teeth, mm-hmm. you know, the island, I don't know, it was maybe five miles long, something like that. Five miles around the whole thing. It's tiny. And the woman that owned Southern Cross, uh, Elizabeth McCabe, also owned the Jackson paper. So there were a lot of people from Jackson Hole that over time went down there. And I spent about six weeks there one winter, and that was it. I knew that salt water is something I needed to do more of. And a really long story that we won't get in today, but I ended up in Crooked Island in the southern Bahamas. Mm-hmm. Crooked Island, which at that time wasn't even on the map for Bahamas Air. Mm-hmm. So when you got on Bahamas Air to fly in one of their Dash 8s and you looked at the map, even though you were going to Crooked Island, it wasn't included in the map of the Bahamas. <laughs> I mean, how crazy was that? So, yeah, remote. I mean, a really remote place. And I know you don't want to get too into that, but one of the things that's very interesting about just your story is in in life you've you've kind of made big moves for lack of a better phrase you know you go from being a kid growing up fishing freshwater and then you go and you get into the fly fishing scene in wyoming then you start doing these trips and then you end up at crooked creek and uh once again if people want to well, hear crooked the, creek would be someplace in oh Montana, crooked creek but, no but crooked, crooked island, island. <laughs> <laughs> crooked creeks actually i think there's a clothing brand but um crooked island and and once again if people want to hear that i'm not we talk about it, we're not going to make you relive the whole story there but um, you can listen to April Vokies, but you know, for you, you were making, you weren't afraid to take big changes and big risks. Have you always well, been that and way? When you say that the next move after, you know, 14 years in the Bahamas was the next big move was Panama. Mm-hmm. And so I went from, you know, the situation, um, you know, in the Caribbean and the Bahamas to now, Isla Zecas on the Pacific side of Panama, mm. where I'm fishing Hannibal Bank, Montuosa, Coiba, the legendary waters of some of the greatest big game fishing in the world. Mm-hmm. So that was probably maybe one of my biggest moves. But yes, the progression of them all was big, 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 and then the biggest. And and has that always been your personality? I though? guess big boy Carter Andrews, you know. Because <laughs> I think, you know. Go I, big or go home. <laughs> most people can dream to make one big jump in their uh-huh. life. I mean, truthfully, like they're one big jump. But you, your life has been a progression of just one jump to the next jump to the next jump. I mean, for you, is 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 that something that comes easy or every time is it? you know, a a huge challenge for you to adjust and to figure everything out. I mean, what's that process like? Well, the, the, the decision process is really simple. It's just, we're going, (laughs) (laughs) but then once I've made the decision that I'm, I'm going to do that, there is a lot of, uh, of, you know, good planning that goes into it so that there's, Mm -hmm. 
there's not the aspect of failure and coming home. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of the, everything that I did, I stayed for, you know, incredibly long periods of time doing what I was doing and, um, committing myself to, you know, there isn't going to be a chance of failure. And mm-hmm. same thing after, after I left East Las Vegas, I didn't even leave, but we closed to do a resort rebuild. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened when we were closing to do that rebuild, I got approached by this production company to start doing a TV show. So then that was kind of the next thing. And it was, you know, just, you know, committing that. And then that rebuild went on for two years and three years. And by that time, I was so ingrained in the show that, you know, going back to Panama and my girls had started traditional school instead of homeschooling. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, as much fun as that was, we kind of like our friends and do what we're doing. But I couldn't have done, you know, most of that with, out having you know the partner that I did have is Heidi and she mm-hmm. uh, she's willing to do those moves with me you mm-hmm. know at least she went to the Bahamas with me and then she went to Panama with me and now we're here in Vero but uh, you know behind you know kind of great men or whatever there's always somebody mm-hmm. else there that's helped them get there yeah and as you look back at all those different places that you've lived in those different environments that you've worked in and different, in a lot of ways too, it's interesting because you've been a part of a lot of different types of businesses because you've been a guide on the water, you've ran lodges, you've done destination travel, you've done a a whole, you know, television. When you look back at all that, is there one that stands out to you or maybe it's more meaningful of of a jump that you've made in life? I mean, if I can just think of, I mean, if I had to pick one of those that I did, I don't know. How do I pick one of them? Because each one of them is really unique in themselves, mm-hmm. truly. I mean, I think about the life that I made in Wyoming and the friends that I still, I lived there for 32 years in, mm-hmm. in Jackson. Yes, I was traveling a lot of those winters and going to these destinations. But um, living on an island in Panama was probably... And a lot of that had to do with the fishing that I had access to. Mm-hmm. Some of the best black marlin fishing in the world. Definitely some of the best yellowfin tuna fishing in the world. Rooster fish, Kubera snapper. And then the difference was, you know, the gentleman that I was working for, you know, we had a very special program. And if it made sense, then we did it mm-hmm. as far as financially, you know, so I wasn't down there by myself, you know, squeaking by on bad boats and bad tackle. Yeah. We had the best of everything. Yeah. And, and that's something about you that talking with you and even some of the conversations we had on the phone and you're explaining tackle and how you think through the gear you use and it's it's interesting too because we'll get into this more but you do a wide range of fishing so you're familiar with a lot of different types of gear and brands have you always been somebody who pays a ton of attention to the gear or or is that something that developed as you went along I think that developed as I went along but I learned to appreciate that the right gear and the right piece of equipment for a job made success 
quicker, better, made mm -hmm. it. You know, if I'm using the right the right tool for the right job, mm -hmm. then you, you would have success. And um, and I'm pretty particular about you know rods. I, I like really fast action rods, mm -hmm. whether I'm fishing, you know, conventional or fly. Mm -hmm. And you know, for those that there are scenarios where slower action rods are better for certain techniques, and mm -hmm. I typically get around it by adjusting the way I'm fishing mm -hmm. um, as opposed to necessarily changing the rods up. But like I said, I'm, you know, there are some things I'm pretty particular about, but mm -hmm. in general, I just know that if I'm going deep chopping, it's nice to have an electric reel. <laughs> <laughs> I bet the older you get, the more that, that, that rings true. I, I used to, I was the guy that I wanted to like, go to the limits all the time and mm -hmm. i still do a little bit of that so i mean sword fishing daytime sword fishing uh i was with a guy named brett holden and he told me you know you bring your stellas you get the right line on there we're gonna we're gonna catch them mm -hmm. daytime dropping on a spinning rod a mm -hmm. swordfish in 1600 feet of water i got three in one day <laughs> i mean first time anybody's ever done it yeah so, like I said, kind of taking yourself, your tackle to those limits. Yeah. Doing things that people hadn't done. My trips to um, Nova Scotia, Bluefin Tuna, mm -hmm. it's not something new catching, you know, 800, 900 pounders on stand-up. People do it. People had been doing it, but I hadn't gotten the chance to do it. Mm -hmm. So that when the opportunity presented itself to go catch them, I took a Talica 50. Well, I took a few of them. Talica 50s and uh, some of the uh, Therese Unlimiteds with bent butts. And it was amazing. Now, Nova Scotia has shallow water, so you're not fishing in thousands of feet of water. And those tuna can really only run out. But, I mean, I think I the first day, I think I caught four from 600 to 800 wow. pounds. Yeah. And all of them less than 30 minutes. Wow. And that's just having good good equipment. Here we go back to equipment. Mm -hmm. Having good equipment and good technique. And I'm a big boy and I could just, you know, put my ass into them and, yeah. and make it happen. But it's, you know, it's amazing um, what you can do with equipment these days. It's, it's, you think about the fishing equipment that we started with, you know, 40 years ago and where we are today. Mm -hmm. everything braided lines are a big deal and now rods and reels are now basically being made because of what braided line has done and everything's gotten smaller and lighter and you know more technical and you know the rods that i'm using to catch um you know whether it's striped bass and cobia and snook uh or the bluefin tuna are literally half if not a quarter the size they were 40 years ago wow and something i wanted to kind of pick your brain on was you know so one from a business standpoint or a career standpoint you've made these different jumps and you've been to all these different places you know and ended up in panama moving back here getting the opportunity to tv give me a peek behind the mindset of carter andrews when it comes to seeing an opportunity, whether it's a daytime drop or catching a tune on a certain type of tackle, 
what's that mentality? Have you always had that just to go get it and go, go do it if you get the opportunity? I, th- I think um, opportunities come up a lot. Mm-hmm. But one will trigger something more than another. Um, it's got to be something that I'm really interested in or passionate about. It's got to be something that's going to make a difference for me personally. Um, this uh, For 2022, did something a little different. One of my episodes, I had a, a friend of mine invite me to Washington Island, which mm. is the northern end of Door County, Wisconsin, for smallmouth bass. Now I grew up, he, he was a friend. He's a friend now, but he wasn't mm-hmm. a friend before. He watched me on one of the shows or something where I mentioned growing up fishing smallmouth and that smallmouth is still one of my favorite fish. So he contacted me about Wisconsin and Door County, which is some of the best smallmouth fishing there is. So I said, yeah, you know, I'm going to come up and do a show. So I trailered my CV all the way up to Wisconsin <laughs> and put my CV on the Great Lakes and uh, and went smallmouth fishing. And next year, it's going to be one of the best episodes of the year. Just spectacular smallmouth fishing with, you know, Perrin James, one of my underwater guys, you know, swimming down there. And per- Perrin, who dives with everything from, uh, you know, blue whales and humpbacks to orcas and belugas and sharks and he said, Carter, small mouth. <laughs> and, and he said, Carter, I just shot some of the best footage I've ever shot. Wow. So I'm really excited about all of that. But uh, so when those opportunities, that's what you're saying. Something, yeah. something says it. I get opportunities to go, as you can imagine, go fishing all the time. But that one right there was a trigger because mm. smallmouth is something that I love to do. Um, and it's, it's about the, the species. It's about the place they're found. It's about the tackle you're using, uh, the techniques you're using. So, you know, I'm, I'm freshwater. I'm saltwater. I'm fly. I'm conventional. I'm not the best. I like to tell people I'm not the best at any one of those things, but I'm pretty good at a little bit of all of it. Why do you think so many people, when we talk about, you know, most people in their life, they, they can't even bring themselves to make one big jump like that. Just one big move, one big shift. Why do you feel like most people just, they, they don't do it? Well, I mean, I really haven't thought of that, but, um, you're, you're right, I guess. Um, hmm. I mean, it can be, I guess it can be scary. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at it as exciting and the, the anticipation of what's going to happen next at that place. I mean, throw myself into Panama and I was like, I mean, all I could say is otra cerveza, por favor. That was about the extent of my <laughs> what, Spanish. What does that mean? Another beer, please. <laughs> you know, and, that's a good and, one to know. And it's, it's still not much better. Followed so. <laughs> by baño, bathroom. Yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, yeah, the thought of taking my family down there and homeschooling and, you know, we lived on, an, not only did we go to Panama, we lived on an island 25 miles off the coast, mm-hmm. you know, an island that had 30 people on it. So that was just, I mean, that's what, you know, Swiss Family Robinson stuff yeah, and my girls every day, you know, <laughs> playing in the tide pools, and that's what I thought about. You know, yeah. I had this 
in my mind, okay, we're going to go to Panama. My wife and girls are going to go with me. We're going to live on a tropical island, and they're going to run around barefooted. And, you know, I was like, how can it, it doesn't get any cooler. And dad's going to be out every day, you know, catching black marlin. Yeah. So did, did you find it though where you make these jumps and you figure it out, things work out, they find their way? Did you find it getting easier and easier as you kind of maybe develop some confidence in yourself and I just I there was I don't think in there was not one move I made that I didn't feel like there was there was never a chance of failing. Okay. In my mind I never thought, "Oh my god, this isn't going to work out." Mm-hmm. And even before I moved to Jackson Hole, you know, I made three or four moves on the East Coast that, well, you know, maybe they weren't necessarily the right moves because I didn't stay long, but maybe mm-hmm. that's why I didn't stay long at those places. But once I moved and made those big decisions, they were big decisions. And I, I got to be honest with you, I've, I'm, I have a lot of confidence. You know, I have a lot of confidence when I walk in a room, when I go see a sponsor, when I move to Panama. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that probably just helps a lot. I think it's sure. just part of my personality. Sure. And you said you made some moves where it wasn't the right move. Was that a feeling? Was it just not? You you talked about when you get opportunities or something that triggers. Is it? How do you determine that? Well, those you know, when I said maybe not the right moves, those were some moves pre Jackson Hole '88, okay. and they were a little you know, six months bounces on the East coast doing stuff. Okay. So that's bad stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that Irrespons- for another day. Irresponsible stuff, but yeah, we'll leave that for another day. But I, I, I was also curious too. something that's interesting about you. You know, we're sitting in this room and there is tackle that you could go chase brim and smallmouth with. And there's tackle in here that you could go chase Marlin with. Mm-hmm. And you love chasing it all. It's interesting, though, because it seems like a lot of people, they either get into fly fishing and it's just nothing from there other than that, or they or they get really comfortable. Maybe they're really comfortable live bait fishing and they just get stuck in that space. What is your argument for being an all-around angler or what drew you to wanting to be able to do it all rather than maybe being a specialist in one thing? I, there's something about being the complete angler that in every single situation I find myself in fishing, I can take something from another situation and apply it to where I am. I mean, you could drop me off, you know, on any body of water in the world and I'm going to figure it out. I might figure it out with bait, with fly, conventional, whatever it is, but I'm going to figure it out by using all those different disciplines and the experience in all of the areas that I've been. Mm -hmm. Um, What I would like to say to people, I mean, for the fly guys, God bless you. It's a wonderful group of people. I am a very passionate fly angler, but you know, that is, you know, you're, you're also, um, just because somebody is fishing conventional gear, uh, you know, don't, you know, poo poo them or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, that guy that's fishing conventional, I, 
I guarantee you some of those bass professionals have casts that fly fishermen could never dream of making and have skills that are way beyond that. And then there are fly fishermen that have skills that are absolutely amazing in what they can do, casting and catching. But, you know, everything has its place. I really um, recommend that a conventional angler at some point in his career try fly fishing. And I think fly fishermen at some point in their career owe it to learning a little bit more about the conventional side of things and realizing that it's, you know, the fly fishing guy has their attitude a lot of times because they think it's just so easy to pick up a, um, you know, a spinning rod, you got a rooster tail on it, you throw it out there and you catch a fish. Yeah, well, you know, I pick up a fly rod and I throw out a mud minnow and I catch a fish. It's pretty easy too. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, you know, there's so much more to it. And, you know, if you really look into that conventional world, it's, it's 10 times as deep as the fly world. Mm-hmm. It's just, there's so much to it, but, um, fly fishing. I love it. I don't do as much of it as I did for a long period of time. Certainly not because, I mean, I was on the U S fly fishing team and competed in Australia. I've done the ESPN great outdoor games and won the casting competitions. Mm-hmm. I beat I beat Steve Rajeff, twenty seven time world champion. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I love fly casting. I'm proud of my casting. Um, but I don't do it all the time because it doesn't fit a lot of the scenarios that I'm in. Yeah. Not always it does, but I also the amount of money that's in the conventional world. And right now that's what I'm doing. I mean, I'm TV and I have my sponsors and I apply fly fishing when and where I can. I mean, I've caught grouper on fly, uh, striped marlin fishing in mag bay. We're not even talking about bait and switch. I'm talking about pulling up to a bait ball, casting a fly, stripping it wow. as pure yeah. a form of fly fishing as you could imagine for billfish and catching them, mm-hmm. you know? So, for me, I have found certain times that I just say, I'm going to do this on fly. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about dropping. <clears throat> you could be dropped in a fishery and you can figure it out. And that's something that has been a common theme with a lot of the people that I've been able to interview on this cast. They're, they t- or on this podcast. They take pride in their ability to be able to understand what is happening and, and why it's happening and how they can go and, and catch that fish. What makes somebody be able to be dropped in a fishery that they have no familiarity with and be successful? What are those building blocks that they have? Well, you've, you know, gotten to do podcasts with, you know, some of the best of the best. So those guys, we all have the one thing that I think we all have in common is the experience. You know, we are professionals in our industry because we have 50,000 hours of experience, we're not necessarily professionals because we have 50,000 followers. You know, there's a big difference in that. Mm-hmm. You know, just because somebody has a big following doesn't mean that they are a professional in that industry. Mm-hmm. Hours on the water 
and, um, you know, learning through that trial and error and through experiences, there's nothing that can replace that. And I think that that's where, you know, these guys that you're talking about, they've been in so many situations. They've gone through so many tide cycles, so many years. They've just been able to see it all and experience it. So when something happens now, for most of us, I think it's, you know, it's a reaction to it. We don't even have to think about it. It's just, okay, this happens, I do that. Mm -hmm. That happens, I'm going to do this. So, um, um, and that's, it's, there's, there's nothing else but experience that mm -hmm. time on the water. Hmm. You know, I don't remember exactly what the, the Japanese used to say about being a master, but it was something like that. It's like 50,000 hours. Mm -hmm. You've got 50,000 hours, you're a master. Mm -hmm. So you think about that. No, I think that's really good. A another area I wanted to kind of zoom in and try to peek behind the mind of Carter Andrews here is a big part of, obviously, your passion about fishing. You're passionate about understanding the fish, having the right tackle, having all those pieces that you can make whatever scenario you're in come together but you're also passionate about conservation a lot of people know you from the you know people tagging you on social media picking up a piece of trash a day i see that every day i see see something like that where did your love for conservation not just fishing but conservation come in in your story <laughs> I mean, it's um, the conservation. It's a love for nature. It's a love for, you know, the water and the woods and the animals, the fish. You know, I just, it's, it was a way of life, I guess. Mm -hmm. It was, I, I never thought anything about it. It wasn't, it wasn't something that I forced myself into. It was mm -hmm. just part of me. And, um, you know, Growing up on a farm in Tennessee, dude, at any given time, I mean, this isn't necessarily conservation, but at any given time, you walk into my bathroom and there's a soft shell turtle in the in in my uh, bathtub, and I got a hog nose snake and uh, a bucket and a possum and the dog carrier, and mm -hmm. you know, I just liked you know animals and. The possum was in the dog carrier because I thought he was hurt. I didn't know possums played dead. So <laughs> I picked up the possum. I carried it back to the house, put it into the the, the dog carrier, go down, go down to tell my mom that I've got a possum upstairs that needs to be doctored he, and everything. He played dead the whole time. The whole time. All he right? was committed to the role. Mom, make, Yeah, committed. <laughs> mom makes me wash my hands. I go back upstairs after dinner. Dude, I almost shit in my pants. This thing was so mean and so nasty. And you, uh, you ever seen a possum just like? Yes, I've seen him not play dead. Yes, not play dead. Yeah. Well, that's what I was carrying around. <laughs> and you know, here I am at like six years old, and this thing now is all of a sudden alive in the cage, and I can't even get it out. And anyhow, yeah. Well, playing but, dead's their first. That's their first uh, method of defense. Mm. Their second is like any other animal. It's just pure wild craziness. So the conservation side of things, everywhere I went, you know, whether it was the Smoky Mountains and Center Hill Reservoir, 
I don't know. And I knew that, you know, when you're out there, you know, you, you kind of take care of it. You don't, you don't throw your trash out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, how, how do you leave a piece of trash on the ground? Or even worse, how do you throw something on the ground? You know, mm-hmm. or a trash bag full of multiple pieces of trash. How do you throw a can in the water? It just doesn't, I don't know. It, uh, so that, you know, and I was the guy, I love to eat fish mm-hmm. and I like killing fish. Um, but I don't always kill my limit, even when I'm on an incredible bite. I'd, because I think right now we have more people than fishing ever before. Mm-hmm. We have bigger boats. We have faster boats. We have better electronics. I mentioned our tackle earlier. Right now, we have better tackle today than we've ever had. Mm-hmm. And with the increased 7 million new licenses sold last year that have never been sold. 7 million. Mm-hmm. So now we've got a pressure on our resources that's bigger than it's ever been. Most of the states still have the same regulations that we had three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Dude, right now, the Indian River, the loss of habitat, we have zero grass in the Indian River here in Vero. Zero. Hmm. Loss of habitat is 98%. But you're still allowed to kill two redfish. There aren't any redfish. Fifteen years ago, two redfish, you caught 20 redfish a day. You don't catch two redfish in two weeks, but you can still kill two if you find two, which is just insane to me. Mm. So, I don't know. Conservation, something I look at and just, you know, I police myself. Mm -hmm. I think other people ought to police themselves on certain things. But, um, you know, Mother Nature is a pretty unique thing. And, uh, you know, we give her a little bit of help here and there. And she can take care of it. I mean, she took care mm-hmm. of it long before we got here. She did a really good job. Mm-hmm. The only reason we have all these problems are because of us. Mm-hmm. We as man. You know, whether it's the water quality issues in South Florida, uh, Everglades and Florida Bay, um, or, you know, fish kills or Tampa Bay right now. I mean, yeah, red tide is a natural occurring event, but when it's magnified by what we've put in the waters mm-hmm. by a hundred times, I mean, what's happening in, and I don't even want to hazard to guess the volume, you know, the tonnage of fish that were killed in Tampa Bay two weeks ago and still being killed. But yeah, it's, we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, I don't know whether we'll ever know the truth out of it, but so earlier you mentioned that you get these opportunities to film like the smallmouth episode, and it triggers something. When Benny asked you to be a part of this Everglades episode, what was that trigger for you? Uh, well, the biggest trigger immediate was his involvement with Captains for Clean Water and the fact that we're both ambassadors and it's something that he and I can get together and speak about, you know, passionately, number one. Number two, the Florida Everglades for me uh, is still one of those places that I think of as, you know, a destination. I'm living here in South Florida, but I've only done... I'm having a little water for you guys that um, aren't watching mouth getting dry. Um, 
I'm, uh, you know, now that I'm in South Florida, the Everglades for me is like a destination. It's like going to some really cool place because mm-hmm. it is a really cool place. Uh, so every chance I get to go, I jump on that. So yeah. when Benny said we were going to go to the Everglades, I said, well, all right. Um, our original little tarpon program didn't work out. You know, I hate that ex- the expression, well, that's fishing. Because <laughs> for me, I you know, fishing is, I mean, we're, we should be able to figure out, but sometimes we still get fooled by it. You know, even the best of the best get fooled by what's going on out there. You know, Benny jumps 16 tarpon two days before I get there, and then we can't even get bit yeah. when I get there. Might have been me. It might have been the angler. It's probably the angler. But um, what I did get to do was go fish Florida Bay. Mm-hmm. I have fished parts of Florida Bay recently, kind of the stuff close to the Gulf, but... I have not been way back up in Snakebite and some of the other places that we were and gotten to see what's happening. You know, we fished at the bottom end of the tide after a big storm. Everything slicked off, so we were at the lowest water possible and then an incoming tide. We were between a group of flats, so all the fish that were up on the flats had to be in this deeper water where we were mm-hmm. that included the bait fish the mullet the sharks the trout the snook the redfish it was all there mm-hmm. and the place was alive and for two and a half hours it was as good a fly fishing as you could have anywhere in the world I mean, 25, 27 fish as fast as I could, as fast as Benny could call the shot and I could get it hooked up, we were catching one, releasing one, catching one, releasing one. And it's, uh, you know, it's amazing to see. The trouble that Florida Bay was went through a few years ago, where it is now, it's doing great. Uh, it's still not what it used to be. You know, where we were, that was all, I believe he told me, eelgrass. Uh, eelgrass is a lot different than turtle grass. It certainly doesn't filter the water near as turtle gra- near as well as turtle grass. Mm-hmm. Turtle grass is a bigger bladed grass. Um, eelgrass, you know, is tiny, thin. Mm-hmm. So you still have some of that, you know, disturbed water in mm-hmm. there. Um, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, the the quality of fishing was just absolutely spectacular. A lot of that had to do with the guy pushing me around, probably being at the right place at the right time. And that's where experience comes into all of this. You know, we stumble on a lot of things as anglers, and then you take note of that Mm -hmm. and you learn from that. And uh, Benny has obviously taken lots and lots of notes, and he's learned a lot. I mean, he knew what we were going to do when we went to go do it, and we did it. Mm -hmm. And it was just mm. so. Yeah, and I think for for Benny getting a chance to travel around with him and and help with the show, you know, realizing that people need to know their backyard and fight for their backyard. That's Benny's backyard. Right now, right. if you're here, Mosquito Lagoon, Indian River Lagoon, you know, you need to be a voice for that. And then where I'm at, even up in the Panhandle, you know, that often doesn't get talked about, but we're we're seeing issues happening now localized smaller issues that can become bigger issues so people need to know their water know what's going on take note not just to be successful for 
catching fish, but to be the voice for that fishery. And, you know, I know for Benny, that's what drives him is to say, yeah, there's incredible fishing here, but there's also issues here. You want to experience the, the fishing and then also be a voice for you. You've been a voice of conservation as long as I've been paying attention to anything in the industry. And recently you just got the uh, award from stewardship. Yeah, stewardship award. Yeah, that was a big deal for me. Tell me about it. What, what to you, because you were so, emotional receiving it. I get emotional all the time. I, I love to cry. I don't know what it is. I'm, you don't I, seem I, like you would, but <laughs> but but what, what about it? G- give me certain th- things make me cry. The environment makes me cry. My girls make me cry. Animals make me cry. You know those things yeah. are the you know that hit home. And um, I'm not gonna le- I'm not gonna let you make me cry. But I'm gonna tell you a little bit about it. One to get that award in front of all of my friends. Mm-hmm. You know, for something that, uh, it, that was, you know, it was based upon one piece a day in that campaign I've been working on. But, you know, it's, it is so much more than that. I, I really think it's everything that Carter Andrews, you know, teaches, preaches, you know, who he is and what he represents. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't just one piece a day. That was Carter and the way he lives his life. Um, and like I said, to be recognized by the guys at Costa and recognized by Captains for Clean Water, that was just, um, you know, I'm really proud to be associated with that. And I'm, I'm almost, I'll go as far as to say, you know, I need that. There are mm-hmm. certain things that happen in the course of your life and the path of your life that, you know, we talk about successes and, you know, I don't need a pat on the back for much. I don't need, you know, thank yous for, you know, all the stuff that I did in Panama or the Bahamas or these different places. But it's certainly nice when you get it, mm-hmm. you know, you when you get that kind of recognition. And, um, and what was even more overwhelming, not just receiving it there and, like I said, in front of so many peers, it was really everything that I got afterwards mm-hmm. through social media and uh, emails, people that I, you know, didn't even know realized it. And I mean, I got a phone call today from a guy that I, you know, was, I think one of the, you know, bigger guys and policy guys in fishing. And uh, I guarantee he wasn't at the Costa event. I don't know that he spends much time on social media, but he called me to congratulate me today. So, you know, those things, you know, people see it and recognize it. So, you know, I loved it. One of the I th- actually asked him why I couldn't take it home. <laughs> I wrote Daniel and, uh, and Chris and said, uh, dude, let me just, I want to take it home for a year. That should be yeah. the traveling trophy. Yeah, sure. They should be too. There should be no two. They, they want it in their office. So, yeah. you know what? I might just take it upon myself to make one. Ma- make one, and yeah. then we'll start sending it around to everybody's house. There you go. You should. <laughs> one of the things I love about a piece a day is so I, you know, I'm a girl dad too. I got two daughters. I talk about them a lot on the show. My five year old, she goes with me on scouting trips. In my mind, they're always scouting trips. That's what allows me to live with the mistakes that five-year-olds make. Loud feet, dropping Yeti bottle, you know, okay, it's a scouting trip. But for her, you know, seeing a piece of trash 
that's easy for her to understand. This is nature and this shouldn't be here. Someone threw this trash here so she can pick it up. Now, if I want to try to explain, you know, well, you know, the salinity issues in the Florida Bay with the, that's a lot for a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But a five-year-old can understand trash. And that's a great starting place. To, and then we can move into more deep pressing things that are happening to underneath the surface. Where did the one piece a day come from for you? It, it was as simple as I always have picked up shit in the water. You find it floating, you pick it up. The balloons, probably one of the worst, um, you know, offenses there is. But And I would always pick it up. And then one day I was with Ryan, the guy that works with me, and picked up a piece of trash. I said, dude, we got to make a post. I'm going to post this one piece a day. Can you imagine if everybody just picked up one piece of trash a day? And it literally in, I do things like that. My mind will hit something and I'll spend five minutes on just racing through it all. And what has become one piece a day in the whole campaign went through my mind that day in five minutes, just like a flash like that. And, and talking to Ryan and talking through it. And it was as simple as that. Can you imagine if I got 10 people, a hundred people, a thousand people, a million people a day picking up one piece of trash. Now I'll take it one step further there. I got a call from a guy in Australia that wants to do hire a marketing agency and take one piece a day global for no other reason, except it's the right thing to do. And he goes, you know, if we do that, you might lose, you know, your anonymity, your autonomy, autonomy, your your name, not your it. anonymity. No, no, what, what no, am I even thinking of? Anon- it, anonymous. No, it's, you, you, no, no, right. Well, something like that. <laughs> I know you, you and I obviously didn't. You're you know, autonomous. Yeah. We, it won't be connected. It won't be. Con- yeah, and I said, sure. he, and I said, dude, it doesn't matter. It's it's way, this is way bigger than Carter Andrews. This is yeah. you know this is about you know cleaning our worlds. And you think about these great organizations like. Uh, uh, four oceans that are going down there and cleaning the worst beaches you've ever seen and the amount of trash in certain places. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine if that trash never got there. That's what, I mean, Yeah. why should we be cleaning up that? So, you know, the one piece a day, the kick plastics, it's all of us becoming more and more and more aware. There was a campaign back when I was a boy, a boy. So I'm 54 years old now and in uh when i was you know eight and ten years old in tennessee about a cherokee indian that Mm. you know here i go getting emotional again he's up on the mountains and he's looking down and it's just you know a highway that's littered with trash and he's got a tear coming out of his eye but where it went from there the state of tennessee over the next 15 years was a beautiful state and trash you know in our culture doesn't exist anymore i mean yes we do Mm -hmm. still have trash but nothing like we did back in the 60s and 70s yeah you know you don't you could probably look at pictures and remember that but i've seen that i've seen the commercial that you're talking about oh you have you know i've seen it yeah okay so and that made such a difference and you know you think about places where you know and that started with me learning as an mm-hmm. eight and 10 year old and growing. So it's generation to get things out of the way. The older people that are already doing it, they're going to keep doing it. Yeah. 
that guy driving down the road that throws trash out, just because he saw that commercial, he's still throwing trash out. No, he's he, laughing. Yeah. He doesn't even get it. Um, but it's that next generation. And um, I'll never forget, I was <laughs> I was um, out of Iquitos in Peru this year fishing, two years ago, fishing Arapaima in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. We were up at... Um, um, Boy, I don't even know if I can pronounce the lake right now, but it was a three-hour flight that uh, their their type of navy flew us into. Wow! And um, we were there was a couple rivers ran into this lake, not that big of a lake, maybe ten miles long, and then one river ran out of the lake. And there are a couple like indigenous villages that live up there. I saw no trash in the whole time I was up there. Nothing. Wow. No trash. I mean, because we're in the middle of the Amazon, the headwaters mm-hmm. of the Amazon. And then one day we were fishing the river, and there was a red-topped bottle floating down the middle of the river. Mm-hmm. A red-topped bottle. That's Coke. That's a Coca-Cola bottle. Yeah. You know, so we went over, we picked up that Coca-Cola bottle. But it's amazing that some place as pure and as simple that there was still trash there. Yeah. That there was still, you could still find it in places like that. And then you go down to Iquitos, that town itself where we based out of. They literally dump all of their trash on the edge of the river all around the entire city. And then during rainy season, when the river comes up 30 feet... And floods, all that trash is taken downstream. Wow. That's how they get rid of their trash. There's no proper disposal of trash. It is dumping on the riverbanks everywhere. And then when it floods, once a year, or, you know, for that six months during rainy season, the trash goes. It was was just, I couldn't believe what I saw. So, you know, you're a kid, you see this ad. It obviously resonates with you. You see change come from it. You know, there's still a lot of fight around Biscayne Bay. There's still a lot of fight around water quality issues all across the state of Florida and beyond. But for you, there's a sense of hope. And that's something interesting to me because you've been in the industry a long time, been to a lot of different fisheries, fished a lot of different things, and you still love it and you still have hope. How do you keep that? Well, <laughs> Um, well, just because I believe, I believe all the time. I never stop believing. I disappointed a lot of times. I was, uh, in Washington college, uh, in Chestertown, Maryland on the Eastern shore. Um, when they put the first moratorium on striped bass. So this is what I'm going to talk to about hope. Mm -hmm. This is where I believe in things. They put a moratorium. So you weren't even allowed to you know, catch and release them. You were forbidden to fish for striped bass. That's how bad things had gotten. That's where the fishing had gone through recreational, commercial, just over harvesting the species. Okay. In the Chesapeake Bay. Chesapeake Bay is one of the three major spawning um, tributaries on the East Coast. Anyhow, it was closed. So when I was at college there, I didn't even get to fish for striped bass in the mecca of striped bass. Wow. I mean, how fucked up is that? Yeah. Right? 
But 10 years later, striped bass were bigger and better than ever before. Hmm. Record numbers. So, you know, what they did was everything paid off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those giant spawning females were back in the bay, running up to Susquehanna, Susquehanna Flats, topwater, 60-pound striped bass. I mean, just what it's meant to be, what the pilgrims got to see. You know, it was that's the kind of <laughs> shit that was going on, yeah. okay? But guess what? We've done it again. Striped mm-hmm. bass is at a place where my friends don't even – target them in the bay anymore that's how bad it's gotten Hmm. you know so i don't know i have hope because i know we can do it Mm -hmm. but then like i said you know believing that we're going to manage it right and things like that that's where i have trouble i have hope because i know what mother you know right now in the indian river right here the water issues that we're having, the lack of grass, is not from the Okeechobee runoff. Our issues up here are a little bit different. I truly believe it's a combination. It's a combination of multiple things, but it's really the herbicides mm-hmm. that have killed all of our grass. I mean, we have like 17 golf courses in Indian River County. Dude, when they spray Rotenone, not Rotenone, sorry. When they spray Roundup, mm-hmm. Rotenone is what they're killing some of the trout streams in the Rocky Mountains with, which is a whole nother subject. But when they spray Roundup on a golf course and kill an entire golf course, yeah. 18 holes, that water runs into the canal, and that canal runs into the Indian River. Well, if it's killing the grass on the golf course, it's going to kill the grass in the Indian River. When the county drives up and down and sprays for weeds in the canals around here, and they're spraying Roundup to kill the weeds in the canal. And that canal dumps it in the river. What do you think is going to happen? Mm-hmm. It's going to kill. When every homeowner that has a beautiful home on the Indian River, when they spray, it goes in the Indian River. Mm-hmm. That's why we don't have grass up here. So, um Sorry, what were we supposed well, to be talking about? <laughs> well, you were talking about hope. Oh, hope. But, oh, oh, hope. Yeah. So this is what I was going to say about hope. If we just did <coughs> half as much, half as much, I guarantee you, you know, nature, and I'm, I use Mother Nature because she is like, she takes care of it all. We give her a little bit of help. You know, just like the striper story, you give her the help and she's going to bring it all back. Mm-hmm. We do the same thing with the grass issues. She can bring it back. She can do it. We just have to give her, you know, a little bit of legwork instead of just, you know, beating it down and beating her down and beating her down where there's no way that she can come back. Just give them that little bit of hope and they'll just start gradually taking it over, taking it over. And that grass will come back. That grass wants to grow there. Mm-hmm. It wants to be there. It's like your lawn right now. Okay. You go poison that patch. And if you don't put poison on it again, it's going to come back. That piece of that, 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 that grass will come back. Mm-hmm. But if you keep poisoning it every three months, the grass will never come back on it. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so hope, I just hope that, we learn from our mistakes and I hope that 
we can do better in the future. I mean, I know we can. You know, there are a lot of people that care. And, you know, I think the people that don't care, it's not that they don't care. They just don't realize what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, some of those homeowners that I was speaking of that live over there on the island, I don't think that they realize um, that what they're doing is affecting mm-hmm. not only the grass <clears throat> the grass and the river, but the crabs and the shrimp and the fish and the birds, all of it in the river. You know, this year we had a lot of cattails growing in the pond and it had actually taken overtaken the pond to the point where you couldn't even go in and, and like pull them out. So I called a guy to get some options on what to do with the pond. And he's like, well, we're, we're just going to poison it. I'm going to, you're going to poison my pond. You're going to, you know, you're going to wow. put weed yeah. killer in there. And I said, well, guess what? That's not an option. He goes, well, that's definitely the cheapest option. I said, well, it's not an option. We're, that's not what I'm going to do. I said, give me another option. He goes, well, I can bring my backhoe in here and I can dig it all out, you know, but it's going to cost, you know, like 10 times the amount of money to do that. I thought, I thought about it. I thought about it. I said, I have to bring the backhoe. Bring the backhoe. I'm not going to contribute to the problem that you know, I'm trying to save. I'm not Mm going to be the guy that's going to dump that, you know, whatever's going to kill all my cattails. And because that water runs from that pond into the next pond and then down into that ditch that runs along Fifth Street that goes into the big canal that ends up going all the way to the Indian River. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we just have to make better decisions. Are you good to do a few rapid-fire questions? Got a few for you. Okay. You're smiling like maybe not rapid. Oh, yeah, no. All right, I'll, I'll keep my answers to um, 15 seconds. All right. So here's the first one. What makes a great angler? Um, I think, you know, a great angler has to have some patience. A great angler has to be able to observe. Um, a great angler has to have... Uh, a little bit of coordination, um, and really a great angler should be able to educate, Hmm. you know, I think, you know, we all have a responsibility to, to help the next person out. Hmm. So when beginning to collect tackle, which you're obviously passionate about, (laughs) And you're at the beginning. What are the essentials? What are the first things? I think um, three rods and uh, three different weight rods. So something that you can throw um, eighth and quarter ounce little soft plastic jig heads. Mm-hmm. And this is either for fresh or salt water. Probably, mm-hmm. probably you can get away in fresh water with two rods, salt water. I think you need three rods, but something like that, you know, a seven foot rod, then, um, another, and I like fast action. I told you I'm all about fast action. Um, you know, medium price reel. You don't have to have the most expensive reel out there, but something that's in the 150 to price range don't you know something a little cheap is cheap um i think another rod in that 
seven and a half foot um, fast action that is uh, for those half ounce jigs, or now you're starting to get into some of the hard baits, you know, the the three to five inch baits that you can throw with that. Mm-hmm. And then a seven and a half foot rod that's uh, rated for, you know, 40 to 60 pound line that you're throwing an 8,000 class reel on that uh, for the guy in South Florida that can go bridge fishing with it or beach fishing with it, that your, your tarpon rod, your cobia rod, a little mm. bit of, you know, all of that. So I just think, you know, three rods, a good variety of lures is important. Uh, <clears throat> soft plastics and hard baits, uh, good swimming lures, a combination of top water. But, you know, you could get away with, you know, a couple hundred dollars in lures and um, two rods. You don't need three rods, two rods. But, uh, and then there's the fly fishing too. So, but, um, not, I don't know, that's, there's, a lot of people call me or write me about rods and uh, and reels and where to start. And, you know, you walk into a tackle shop and that's one suggestion I have. You know, unless you know exactly what you want, unless you know exactly what you want, ordering something online doesn't really work. You need to pick it up. You need to hold it. You need to feel it. Mm-hmm. Even though I talk about fast action rods, well, you know, there's there's a lot of other parts to that and Mm -hmm. it's feeling how that reel balances on that rod well do i want a 2500 or a 3000 or a 4000 reel on this rod so going into your local tackle shop and um and seeing what they have and looking at those different models and deciding well you know i'm basically catching trout and redfish and some snook and this is what i need and that's you know they're the ones that are going to help you and you know I have a local tackle shop here, White's Tackle, that has four different stores within 60 miles up and down the coast here. And all the guys working in those stores fish all the time. When they're not working, they're fishing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, ordering something online, as easy as it is to come to your house, I love going to a tackle store. That's good. When you look at a lot of young anglers today, what is the biggest mistake you see them just making over and over and over again? I think that, um, you know, right now, so many of the anglers, because it's become the way of the world, is that social media leads us into what we're doing. And, you know, a lot of what's happening with fishing, we're getting our likes based upon inappropriate or unethical behavior now unfortunately a lot of those kids don't realize what they're doing is wrong all Mm -hmm. right here is an example if you are going to go fish some of the ponds that are around town golf courses municipal pond whatever it may be these Mm -hmm. make sure you're not trespassing number one make it legal wherever you're going search it out you can find plenty of places to fish whether it's all these canals i was talking about those are great sources of fishing but make sure it's legal and we as anglers have a responsibility to the fish and the catching and releasing of that fish 
after we interact with it during that moment that it's hooked and we have it, like I said, we owe a responsibility to it. Instead of dragging it up on the grass and having it flop around and getting, you know, it's slime that may be on it, the coating that's on it, that fish has never been out of the water its entire life and now you're dragging it in the grass or even worse on the gravel or the sand or whatever it is. Bring it to the shoreline, get down on one knee, pick that bass up, pick that fish up, support that fish with one hand, two hands, however it may be. Get your picture, get what you need out of that for your Instagram, and in a realistic amount of time, get that fish back in the water. Hold it in the water, revive that fish, let that fish swim away from you. You know, so that it's a good, healthy release. Mm. And I think that's one thing that I watch too much. And it's whether it's on the beaches or throwing stuff off of piers or, you know, dragging fish up uh, in the golf course pond, whatever it is. It's, you know, that kind of stuff is, you know, that's being irresponsible. Mm. You know, that's, you know, that kind of behavior is you know, unethical. That's just not right. Hmm. I mean, think about if I did that to you. I'd take, I could take you and drag you out of your house, drag you into the water, hold you down. That's like taking them out of the water. Yeah. Hold you down, kind of let you flop around. Uh, I don't know. It's just, uh, we have, we have to be, do a little bit better. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, you watch post after post after post after post after post. And a lot of the new anglers, the younger anglers see that and, and think it's acceptable because somebody else did it. Mm-hmm. Somebody with 50,000 followers, but not 50,000 hours of experience. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I think, you know, you talked about, you know, some of the other guys that have been on Benny's show, you know, we have that respect mm-hmm. for the environment, for Mother Nature, for the fish in it, for the places we are, and uh, and I just I, I'm I stress to this next generation to you know try to learn it a little bit more, be more you know recognize this, think about what you're doing, mm-hmm. really think about what you're doing. So that, that the, was longer than 15 seconds, sorry. I think it was like 30 seconds. Um, so I got you in a corner here, literally. And you love fishing all these different species. But if you could only fish one species, one way, what is that that way for you? Well, the really quick, easy answer is the next one. <laughs> <laughs> and then I get rid of you really easy. Uh, no, but <clears throat> if there was only one species, what would it be? I mean, I'd... I'm going to go back to that whole thing with smallmouth bass. Mm. You know, I love the places that you catch them. They really like clean water. Uh, I like the tackle I use to catch them. Um, Man, they fight. You know, they're beautiful to look at. They're modeled bodies. Uh, I mean, they they jump, they pull, they do it all. Yeah. You know, but then I could turn around just as quick and say, you know, 
if it's going to be my last day of fishing, give me a black Marlin on Hannibal bank. Yeah. You know, because that in itself, all those experiences are so unique and so special, but yeah. Smallmouth bass. That's a good answer. Um, my last, I mean, look, it's my screensaver on my phone. Oh, you made me move my phone. I believe you. Huh? Look, it's my <laughs> screensaver on my phone. Yeah, that's a great bass. My last, my last question is, I know for you, it all really began as a kid fishing with your dad. Um, if you could go back to yourself as a kid in those early days chasing smallmouth, you know, I know you did some fishing in the Smokies too. What would you tell yourself? What piece of advice would you give yourself? Wow. Uh, what piece of advice would I give myself? I, I mean, I accomplished more than I ever imagined that I would when I was a kid, you know, mm -hmm. and where I am now. So I would, um, you know, and, uh, I would, I would say enjoy just every moment of it, but I have enjoyed every moment of it. Take advantage of everything you could. I have taken advantage <laughs> of everything I could, you know, help everybody, you know, help as many people along the way. I, I think I, I mean, I'm as no well known for that as anything, just giving, mm -hmm. you know, if somebody stops me. I, I sit there and talk to them and tell them, everything that took me 20 years to learn and I'll give it to them in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, um, that's a pretty interesting question and I'm going to have to think on that yeah. until the next podcast we have together. Well, that sounds great. Well, but, I look forward to that day and I appreciate today. Thank you for sitting down with us and, and hanging out. I've enjoyed it. Thanks Hunter. Thank you, buddy. Thanks again for listening to the captain's collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss life on the water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.